Hello and welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Eric Stoyer. Today on the show, we've got Hannah Olson. She's the director of a new movie called Baby God, and it's a documentary. You can find it on HBO, and it's uh, it's about a Las Vegas fertility doctor named Quincy Fortier, who for several decades used his own sperm to impregnate many of his patients without their consent or knowledge. And with the advent of at-home DNA testing and kind of websites where you can track your genealogy and connect with long-lost relatives, um, lots of people began discovering that they were related to Fortier and to each other. And that's where this, uh, this story and this movie kicks off. Olson tracks some of Fortier's biological children who have recently discovered this information. She goes with them as they dig deeper into their own personal stories and as some of them meet each other and as, uh, as some of them tell their, their mothers the difficult information they've learned. It's, it's, um, it's a really good documentary and Olson does a great job showing and not telling. It's very subtle, especially for a story like this that could be treated a whole lot differently. Uh, send me feedback about the show at ericandmoviemaker.com. And uh, now here's Hannah Olson. Why is this story not more well known? I, I poked around a little bit and you, know, you can find some info about it, but you know, there was some news reporting several years back, but it, it's been sort of buried and it's the kind of story that I would imagine in some versions of the universe being like the biggest story ever. I think because the lawsuits that came about in the late 90s and early 2000s that were settled came with gag orders and with confidentiality agreements, as is the case with so many medical malpractice suits. You know, when doctors do the wrong thing and they know they have to settle, the insurance companies that represent doctors insist on confidentiality agreements. And there's no mechanism for for the public interest. Dr. Fortier died in good standing. And I, I think it's also because... You know, everyone who's in the film discovered that he was their biological father accidentally. There was no reason, because because this isn't part of the of public information, there was no reason to look previously. How did you find out about the story? I found out of the story because I started poking around on on message boards for people for donor conceived children. And I, and I saw, you know, Wendy's post about him. And then I started uh, looking around and seeing that, that there hadn't been reporting on him or that there had been some reporting, I'm sure the same reporting you saw, but nothing substantive. Um, and I was genuinely curious about, about his, his intentions. And I, I noticed that you've worked on finding your roots with Henry Louis yeah. Gates, was, was, um, which is about genealogy and people's personal ancestral history. So it was, was the, um, your, your, your curiosity peaked or, or the sort of uh, the research that you began with, was it, was it um, influenced at all by that experience? Absolutely. I mean, I, I worked on the show for seven years and in that time, the way that we construct our family trees changed radically. I mean, at the beginning, it's just, you look at a birth certificate and you see the mother and the father, and then you go back in time and you see the grandparents and their great grandparents. And the advent of, of commercial DNA tests blew that apart. All of a sudden you're finding out that the person who's maybe listed on the birth certificate isn't the biological father. And in, you know, as the show went on over time, a series of ethical questions were raised about how we reveal to people that, that their grandfather is not their grandfather or you know, their father's not their father. The, the term for it is a non-paternal event in the genealogy world. 
The uh, your your documentary is more about the the people who were affected by what Fortier did than than about Fortier himself. And I realize you can't know what motivated him, and you wisely don't go too far in the film to make guesses. Although um, some of his biological children obviously have that front and center in their minds, and they and they and they do talk about that a little bit. Um, I got to ask, you know, after you had your you know your your head in this story for so long. You, what do you think motivated him? And, and is it possible that he just thought he was helping out? I mean, I think we saw, you know, as as I we delved deeper into his practice and his and his family life, a series of darker revelations emerged, and and we saw kind of a, a disregard for consent, right? And and the the way that kind of sex and power can can exist together, you know, that the, the power over that one has over people can be sexually enticing or something. And, you know, with regard to the first part of your question, I do think so many news stories focus on the crime itself and not what happens afterwards. And so much of what I wanted to do with this film was to show that oftentimes for the victims, the path to some kind of closure is, is circuitous or unfinished. And in this case, you know, never ending as, as, the, as the crime continues to exist generation after generation. Yeah, because you could easily imagine a version of this that is told sort of as a true crime story. And you yeah. know, it, it doesn't have that um, element. It's, it's, it's a very emotional um, and, and personal um, look at these things that have happened, but much more about the way that they played out in, in, in future generations in people's lives. Um, as you met all these people, what, what were the things that you noticed about all of them that, that, that they had in common? That's so interesting. That's something I thought a lot about, that kind of I was the only person that was seeing all these different 40 years and um, who, who didn't know each other at all. So for me, I had this kind of bird's eye perspective of seeing it was a it was total nature and nurture study. What did they have in common? There's scientific brains. I mean, since, since I finished filming, five additional siblings have emerged, one of whom is a doctor, another is a scientist. As you saw, Brad works in the, in the world of, of genomic science. Wendy, you know, she's a cop, but she's, she does a lot of forensic investigations. They all had kind of a scientific brain. They were all introverted and kind, really, really kind people. But yes, there, there were definitely traits that they had in common. Can you tell me about the the uh, recording of Fortier talking about himself? I guess he's giving sort of a, his autobiography. What was the source of that and what did he intend it to be used for? That was for the University of Nevada's oral history project. And they were doing or, you know, doctors were recording their own oral histories as kind of, you know, he, he, as he saw in the film, Dr. Fortier died in good standing and his career, you know, he was one of, he was the fertility pioneer. So his life was recorded as part, as part of that project. Yeah, in that recording, unless I'm misunderstanding it, he says that it is very common. I mean, he freely admits that he's doing this and he says that it's common, like as if no, anyone listening would not be surprised we just all know this is the fact, you know, that, that, that people often use their own specimens and fertilizations. So um, I guess related to the, one of the earlier questions I asked you is, did that, when you discovered that that change your feelings about what his, his intentions were? Well, that was kind of, I, I began the process of, of trying to learn about Dr. Fortier 
by contacting his colleagues, trying to find people who went to medical school with him, trying to find the textbooks he would have read in medical school. And there was a lot of stigma around infertility. So a lot of the information from doctor to doctor was passed in these like pamphlets. And so much of what I saw really downplayed the idea that the patient had to know or that the woman had to know. One pamphlet even said something like, it's not, um, it is never worthwhile to tell the, the female patient the source of the, of the donation lest she fall in love with him and leave her husband. You know, and I, I think it's just, I, I wanted to show that there was a series of attitudes that kind of existed then and, and I think continue to exist. This kind of like doctor knows best idea and this idea that people don't need to know or women don't need to know. I think, you know, now that's changing. And part of what I saw in, in making the film is this kind of conflict between like a generation that had a lot of silence and a lot of secrecy around this kind of thing, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, there was a lot, a lot of stigma and secrecy. It wasn't until after World War II that we even realized that men could be the source of infertility. And then the juxtaposition of that kind of whole way of thinking about it with the present day where we want to know everything, you know, and we can find out everything just by spinning in a, in a tube and sending it away for $99. Yeah. I had a couple of questions on that point. I mean, one of the women who had been a patient, she says something to the effect of you know, doctors those days, you almost regarded them like they were a priest, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever they said, you know, they, they, you knew they knew what they were talking about. It reminded me a lot of my older relatives. It reminded me, especially of my, my grandmother who, um, sort of has organized her whole life around where her doctors are. And, you know, and I mean, that's, that's gotta have been a tough thing to, to, to hear from someone um, looking back on, on that experience was, how did you feel about that? It's like, of course. And, you know, and what, and what do we know about priests now? You know, that, that's kind of what I was trying to get at before about the relationship between sex and power, you know, in the same way priests have, have shown themselves to to not be that holy always she i don't know dorothy had a sense of humor about it in a way and you know her son is 70 years old so she has this whole life and relationship with him it was very straight it was very very strange to tell a 93 year old woman or you know mike mike told his mom and then we we came the next day because I wanted to give them some time to digest this. But to tell a 93 year old woman about a crime that had happened 70 years ago. Yes, and I think it does raise questions about the value of knowing or the value of truth or like, you know, do we need to know all of this? You mentioned meeting some of his peers, uh, some of his colleagues. Do you think that now they understand the the sort of full uh, impact and, and, and wrongness of what he had done? Yes, because I think that the, the, what we know about DNA has changed so much. I mean, I think as one of the doctors in the film said, they saw it as like giving blood. You know, it's just something that you have that someone else needs and no one's ever going to know the source of it. And it doesn't matter. The patient's getting what they want. They're there for infertility and they're, they're getting pregnant you know, problem solved. But I think now, you know, we know so much more about 
how much DNA impacts who we are. You know, as Brad said in the film, it's 50% of who we are, maybe, give or take, depending on how you think about things. You know, it's, it's ultimately kind of unknowable or you can't parse out what's nature and nurture. Yes, I think times have changed, but I think that the attitudes that created those, this situation and, and the crimes in the past persist. We still think doctor knows best. And, and in fertility industry today, you know, all of the statistics that doctors have to report um, are self-reported. There's no, you know, national agency uh, overseeing the fertility industry. It's treated as a consumer industry. Doctors only have to report their, their success rates. I just want to put a finer point on it. So the, the, the doctors that you talked to who were his, his colleagues, do, do you think that they understand now the, 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 not the, I mean, like the sort of moral wrongness of yeah. it? I mean, they, they obviously understand that, that, that times have changed and that the science is different, but do they, did you, did you walk away from those conversations feeling like these guys get it or are they still sort of, obviously in some ways they inhabit the attitudes of the past just because they're, they're, they're going to as, 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 um, colleagues of, of uh, Fortier and his older doctors, but, but did you feel like they got it? I'm thinking about it. Uh, yes and no. On some level, no. I mean, I think that's why I included the scene of, of Dr. Silver showing me the, the vaginas that he treated um, on his cell phone. I think it was important to show this kind of cavalier attitude that persists. Right. And, and Dr. Shell kind of laughs about it. Right. And I left those things in there to show that, that these attitudes persist. Do they know that what Dr. Fortier did is illegal? Yes. But do some of the attitudes that they, they show reveal a lighter way of thinking about this? Yeah. And that's why I, I left them. And that's why I put them in the film because I wanted to show that how kind of widespread these attitudes are. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the scene I was just, I, I also had to watch it three or four times under, to make sure that's what I was looking at. It was so bizarre to me. Um, so that was within just a few minutes of having yeah. met him or, or, or maybe, maybe you'd met him previously, but in the first few minutes of this conversation, he's just sort of scrolling through pics on his, on his personal phone. That was quite, quite jarring. And I think, yeah, it's it's it. That's not the same thing as what Dr. Fortier did, but there's a kind of attitude, right? That I, that I was trying to show. What's the connection in 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 your perspective between Las Vegas in particular and this and this story? You're the first person who's asked about that, and it's something I thought so much about. Las Vegas. There's something about chance in Las Vegas and something about the house winning. There's also kind of a lawless, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. There's a kind of lawlessness to it. I also kept thinking about like the quick weddings in Vegas and how it's a, it's a place um, to experiment with, with things. It's also a very American city. You know, it's kind of like the, the underbelly of, of capitalism and, and, and our society. I don't know what the exact connection is, but it, it was all of those kind of images of, yeah, that, that, that made sense to me that he, he was there and he was doing this there. And, and if I remember correctly, uh, there, was, it was, there was sort of an influx of, of young 
people and especially women it sounded like you know, maybe in the maybe in the 50s mm-hmm. yeah as um when i first met dr silver right before he showed me those pictures on his cell phone said that um he he was the only doctor i'd ever meet that was both a casino owner and doctor <laughs> and told me that he you know he that vegas in the 60s was it was all women it was the waitresses you know the pool girls, it was, you know, the, the car dealers were often women, the show girls. So yeah, it, it was a very female town, which I, I had no idea about. I never kind of put that together. And so the OBGYN practice was booming. Did you visit the, um, the clinic that he had had in Las Vegas? Did you, did you go to the site of that? And, and what is it now? Yeah, it's, um, it's a used car dealership now. <laughs> Um, it kind of felt like this metaphor for the whole thing where it's like okay we're here and it's it's a used car dealership like she's looking for all these answers she's looking for all these answers and to find all the records and to figure out exactly you know what's here and it's yeah it's a used car dealership and then you did uh, uh visit his first clinic that he had, which was in, is it called Pioche? Is that the name of the town? Yeah, in Pioche. yeah. We drove to Pioche with Wendy and I thought we were just going to be able to see the exterior. And I noticed that the clinic had a for sale sign on it. And so I called the realtor and said, is there any chance we could get in? You know, Wendy would love to see it. And we had no idea when we walked in that everything would still be there. And so we just started rolling. And so this, like, I, I, when, I, when I was watching it in the edit, I really felt like the scene felt very staged. But it was, it was so real, like her, her just exploring everything. Um, and then when we saw his record still there, and you know, some of the handwriting that you see of his is, was stuff that we found there. It was, it was wild. Yes, when you use some of the film at the beginning of the movie, I thought it was staged also, and then you uh, you use it much more of it when you're actually uh, there in the moment, looking around and seeing it, and it's uh, apparent that it's real and still there. It looks as if a like a bomb dropped in the area you know, years ago, and it's just uh, the people cleared out, but the stuff kind of stayed there and decayed. Um, mm-hmm. So you you were able to get a realtor to let you in and and film it without any problem. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was one of those kind of like yeah, let's go. Or, you know, as soon as we realized we could get in, we just started rolling. And I, yeah, I had no idea that, that the stirrups would still be there or the like, it's a boy, it's a girl cards. That's the place where um, where Mike Otis was conceived. Hmm. What, what was that like for Wendy to be there? Wendy was an interesting person to film with because she, like I said, she has this kind of like scientific mind she's an investigator and I felt like I watched her go into cop mode there. Um, and she had this way of kind of disassociating the emotional aspect of, of what was there with, she, she always just wanted the facts as the film became dark, as you know, we started to reveal or we started to find darker aspects of his, his practice and his family life. You know, I'd often say like, Wendy, do you want to keep going? Is this too much? And she always just wanted the facts. And that's kind of how she was there. 
Uh, do you have thoughts, tips about how to approach sensitive subjects and people that you want to interview for a film in a way that is respectful? Um, with the 40 Year Sisters, I told them that I, I wanted to give their father the fairest shake that I could. And that, that I was, you know, working with Wendy, who was genuinely trying to figure out what, the, what his intentions were. And that I needed, I needed them to help fill in some of the some of the blanks. I think to try to try to be honest with people, it it, it it's 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 so different with each character. Mm-hmm. You really need to figure out what what makes that character tick, and what they're looking for, and what questions they're asking, and what they're struggling with, and then you try to work with that to to get at some truth with them. And then I'd say the one kind of concrete tip I have is after asking a very sensitive question, it's always important that you think might traumatize someone, which you really try not to do, but sometimes, you know, so much of, of my dealing with that particular aspect of this film was trying to juggle, you know, privacy, one family's need for privacy or desire for privacy with, another family's, a kind of larger DNA family's desire for truth. And I, I guess I, I feel like truth is important. Yeah, you try to level with people and and try, and, and really try to understand what, what they, they need or they want out of the interview. Hannah Olson, it was really good to meet you and to hear more about this movie. It was uh, made a big impression on me and I hope people see it. Thank you so much for talking with me and for for watching and for thinking about the film. Have a good one. Okay, bye, Eric. Hey, thanks for listening to our show. You can check us out at moviemaker.com where we post stories every day about movies and movie making and movie makers. Subscribe to Movie Makers Print Magazine. It is an incredible resource if you are someone who's interested in the art and craft of movie making. Follow us on social media at MovieMakerMag. And you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and say a nice thing or two about us while you're there, would you? We will indeed be back soon with another episode of Movie Maker. And we hope you'll be there to join us. Until then, take care of yourselves.